have one last request that we have everyone do. It's kind of a weird one, but when we were trying to think of a name for the podcast, it got determined that it was going to be What's Up, Doc, and then we recognized that that was the stolen logo from uh, Bugs Bunny, and so now we just embrace the idea that it's piracy, basically, and so <laughs> we have our <laughs> guests say the What's Up, Doc, in the Bugs Bunny voice. Oh, it's been so long since I heard, listened to Bugs Bunny. <laughs> uh what's up doc <laughs> back to another episode of what's up doc <laughs> i'm sorry i'm just in a weird mood right now but anyways say hello dr furlong hello <laughs> <laughs> all right uh and just to get started do you want to talk about what you do a little bit about yourself i know that's a very broad question but feel free to go wherever you want from there sure yeah um so i am a comparative psychologist so I'm interested in how animals think and make decisions. Um, a lot of times people think about psychology, they think about clinical psychology or social psychology, um, but they often um, don't know that many people study animals and how they think and uh, what they do. So um, in my lab, we're interested in, um, we work mostly with dogs. Um, so many may have heard that we have a dog lab here on campus um, and that would be me. Um, so um, in our work with dogs, we are interested in um, decision making and problem solving and in social reasoning kinds of tasks. Um, we also do some work at zoos. Um, most of our work has been done at the Louisville Zoo where they have orangutans and gorillas and uh, tigers and bears that we've worked with. Um, but we do partner sometimes with the Miller Park Zoo and um, we do a little bit of field work as well with monkeys um, on the coast of Gibraltar. So that's off the coast of Spain. Um, so lots of animals, uh, mostly dogs, sometimes some primates too. All right, yeah. thank you for that. Um, and you said you're a comparative psychologist, so between animals and humans. So how did you kind of get on that path starting from like graduate school to and beyond? Yeah, so I actually started uh, way before graduate school um, being interested in animals. Um, when I was a kid, I was really little. Um, we lived in um, uh, just outside of DC and I remember going to the, um, uh, the zoo there, the Smithsonian Zoo, the National Zoo, and seeing a gorilla in a pretty bare kind of an enclosure. Um, um, and he didn't really have any toys or anything, but he did have a television. Um, and I remember watching the gorilla watch TV and thinking, like, that's kind of not cool. Like, that's not what gorillas would do. Um, and shortly after that, I started um, doing some work with dogs. So I started training dogs when I was about um, nine or 10 and really got interested in how dogs think. Um, I did a, a research project my senior year of high school on uh, dogs and um, started working with primates when I was in college. Uh, I worked with uh, orangutans at the Louisville Zoo, so that's where I got my, my start was the zoo, um, and with chimpanzees at the Primate Rescue Center, um, which was near where I went to college. Um, it's a sanctuary for, uh, let's see how many chimps they had, I think 11 chimps when I was there, and whole bunch of monkeys. Um, <laughs> so I really got started there. Um, and then I went to graduate school um, and had kind of a, I don't know, an unusual graduate school um, experience. I started working with, um, with chimpanzees there and 
um, about halfway through um, uh, because of circumstances that were very complicated and involved grant funding and um, you know, university politics, I ended up switching um, advisors and did some work with kids um, uh, along the way um, uh, for, my, for my PhD. And um, then I did a postdoc, which is like a research position um, at Yale University where I did um, uh, field work with uh, rhesus macaques in Puerto Rico. Um, and there's a kind of monkey. Um, and we had capuchin monkeys on uh, site. Um, those are a lot of fun. And I also helped them develop their dog cognition lab there as well. So um, lots of uh, animals throughout my life, but um, you know, it really started with primates and dogs and that's kind of still where I am is primates and dogs. <laughs> this may be just a super random question, but what breed of dogs did you have growing up? Um, I had a little terrier named Coco, um, so <laughs> she looked like uh, Toto from the Wizard of Oz, kind of, and I had a Cocker Spaniel, a blonde Cocker Spaniel, uh, Sassy, and uh, they were they were my, my childhood dogs. I got Coco when I was about nine and Sassy when I was, I think, 12, so. And you still do have some dogs now, I believe, right? Yeah, we have two dogs. We have um, an Australian Shepherd mix, Cleo, and she is uh, will be 17 um, very soon. So she's a very old dog. <laughs> um, and we have a lab mix, Charlie, uh, who is uh, 14 and is currently um, battling cancer, uh, but he's doing uh, He's doing pretty well. They're both in here with me. <laughs> they are never more than about two feet away from me at any given time. <laughs> I'm glad that they're able to keep you company like you keep them company too, just because I feel like I've seen what you do and I guess your research in the newsletters for Iowa very often. So I think one of them was like how dogs are helping with companionship during the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about a little bit about like the short little news snippets that you've been writing for both Iowa, like media press everything yeah so i've been writing a little bit for um sort of popular press outlets uh lately because well we can't collect any data in my lab <laughs> right now because of the pandemic so it's it's a little bit hard um for us to do that so this is a way to sort of um keep my um scholarship kind of going um so i i wrote uh, two pieces one of them was on um well, I guess the question really is that I, or the, the background is that I've been getting lots of questions from people who have dogs and who are now home with their dogs all the time. Um, and I'm finding that they have all kinds of questions about their dogs. Uh, but one of the questions that keeps popping up is, um, you know, I love my dog and I really do think that my dog loves me, but is that just me being like anthropomorphic? Am I just like putting my own thoughts onto my dog or does my dog actually love me? Um, and so I did write this uh, piece um, uh, about, yes, your dog actually does love you, <laughs> um, including some of the research uh, on this, looking at um, dog's behavior and looking at some of the things that are happening in their brains as well. So, um, uh, so behavior wise, we know that dogs are, um, uh, if you give them a, a choice, so at the end of a, of a long day, they've been at home alone, they haven't had any food, um, you give them a choice between a bowl of food and their favorite person coming home from work, um, and they can go say, they can go to one or the other, they're going to go see their person first before they go to the food, um, which is pretty cute. 
Um, everybody always thinks their dog's going to pick food over them, but actually dogs pick uh, companionship over food. So that's some of the behavioral evidence. Uh, we also know from uh, the brain um, that uh, when dogs look into their owner's eyes, like uh, Cleo is staring at me right now, um, uh, their brains and our brains both release oxytocin, which is a hormone that's involved in social bonding. Um, so uh, so that, that suggests that there's some kind of bonding that's happening. Um, and finally, we know from um, imaging studies, so fMRI studies, I think it's wild that people can put dogs in an fMRI, um, awake dogs <laughs> doing tasks in an fMRI and get images of their brain. It's super cool. Um, uh, but, but doing that, they can, they can tell that if a dog smells their favorite person, um, their reward center lights up like crazy. So, um, so they, they really do seem to uh, like us um, and love us, I guess, um, just like we uh, love them. So that was sort of the substance um, of one of those pieces. I also wrote in there about um, uh, a dog's sense of smell. Um, we know that dogs have an insane sense of smell, um, <laughs> but many of us don't actually appreciate just how impressive it is. Um, we, um, uh, research has shown that dogs can have a sense of smell that's 100 or 10 to 100,000 times better than ours. Um, so that's like, um, so you might be able to detect a um, teaspoon of sugar in a cup of tea, right? Um, but dogs could detect a teaspoon of sugar in two Olympic-sized swimming pools um, if, if they were smelling. So it's the same. So it's, it's pretty impressive the kind of things that they can do with their, with their noses. Um, um, so those are kind of the, the two questions that I get a lot is like, does my dog really love me? And also, um, you know, what is their uh, perception like? You know, what is their sensory world like? And their sensory world really is a a world of, um, of sniffs and smells. <laughs> um, so one thing I like to tell owners um, when I talk to them about, about their dogs is that um, one of the best things they can do for their dogs is let them smell. Um, so when you take your dog on a walk, uh, let your dog sniff as long as they want to. Uh, let them go explore and tell you when it's time to move on. Um, all too often, I think when we walk dogs, we think we're taking them you know, we're giving them their exercise, we're taking them on this thing, and we are leading it. Um, but, uh, and that's fine sometimes, but sometimes you really do want to let your dog um, uh, exercise their nose just as much as they're exercising their legs. <laughs> kind of going off of that, how was it like publishing pop popular press versus like a research paper? Yeah, it's been really fun uh, publishing in the popular press. I, this is my, let's see, I've done three sort of pop pressy kinds of things. Um, I wrote um, an audio book um, that was published this summer on dog cognition. So that was uh, sort of the biggest project. Um, and then I've written two of these sort of pop um, press kind of articles. Um, and they're really different than writing for a scientific audience. Uh, but in a uh, sort of a, less restrictive kind of way. Like you can have kind of, you can have fun with it. And really, um, I, I, one thing that I really like about research is that um, I am genuinely curious, you know, about how dogs work and how they think and what's going on in there. 
Um, and I get really excited <laughs> when I find out some answers to these questions. And you can let that come through in your sort of pop press writing in ways that you kind of have to be objective and less um, like, hey, isn't this cool <laughs> when you're publishing in, in scientific writing. Um, so it's a it's a definitely a different style and a different audience, um, but it's really fun to do. I've really enjoyed it. So if I was to listen to this audiobook, would I hear you read it or is somebody else reading it to me? You would hear me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a really weird experience. So I um, wrote the audiobook and then um, um, last May, so during the pandemic, <laughs> I had to go to DC to record the book. And I, it was just me alone in this hotel, <laughs> um, uh, just down the street from the recording studio. And um, I felt like I was in The Shining. <laughs> it's like super weird. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I went in this little booth, this little recording booth and um, uh, read my, my book out. And um, uh, it was a, a very strange, um, Thing to do but I think the final uh, product um, I'm pretty pretty pleased with it. So if you weren't the one to read your audiobook would there be like a celebrity or a person who'd be like this is who I want to read my audiobook to the world? Oh man <laughs> that's a great question. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> I agree that would yeah. be funny. <laughs> It would be it's funny. the accent that really like puts it over the edge. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yep. It would be. Uh, it would be pretty amazing. <laughs> so, uh, if I remember correctly, you mentioned at some point that your dad had a PhD in ethics. Have you guys done like any collaboration together on papers? Yeah. Yeah. So my dad's a bioethicist, um, and he's really interested in um, uh, sort of the ethics of captivity. So he and I have done lots of collaborations together over the years. Um, uh, most recently, let's see, we're, we are currently working on a sort of a pop press, another pop press thing um, about um, the ethics of dog ownership. So what ethical duties do you have to your dog? Um, uh, and a lot of times people think about the ethical duties that we have to animals in, in different ways. So they think about like, Oh, like when I was talking about the gorilla at the zoo, like, you know, people think about ethics of zoo animals or ethics of animals involved in research. Um, but they often just assume that their pets are happy, right? That they're doing what their animals need. But uh, a lot of times we don't actually know what our animals need. Um, so for example, that, that sniffy walk that I was talking about where the dogs get to sniff whatever they want um, it's probably not something that comes across um, many people's minds. Um, and yet it, you know, you, you could think about it as an ethical duty to allow your dog to use their nose. Um, so that's one project that we're working on now, but we have co-authored papers and conference presentations many times on really similar kinds of topics, um, including uh, collaborations with, uh, with students who have now since graduated. Um, uh, we recently public or we recently gave a presentation and invited talk at the APA, the American Psychological Association, um, on uh, sort of using zoos as um, um, 
educational facilities. So uh, he and I have team taught classes before where he brings students from his university and I bring students from Illinois Wesleyan and we meet up at the Louisville Zoo and students learn about the uh, ways that the animals there think and the kinds of um, you know, behavior that they would typically exhibit in the wild and then use that to uh, develop um, species specific enrichment items. So these are um, items that um, the animals can engage with that sort of um, mimic the kinds of things that they would do in the wild. So um, uh, chimpanzees, for example, termite fish. So they'll, they'll take a stick, they'll make it into a, um, you know, they'll strip all the bark off and make it flexible and then they'll stick it down the hole of a, of a termite mound and the termites will all grab a hold of the stick, they'll pull it out and then they use it, they eat it like a popsicle. <laughs> they eat the termites off of it. Um, so um, we can mimic that kind of thing by creating, um, you know, artificial termite mounds in captivity. So, uh, so we, we have taught a class uh, like that, team taught that uh, many times in the past as well. So, um, so we teach on and do research on sort of a combo of our interests where we think about what does the animal need? You know, what does research say that the animal needs that they need cognitively and sort of to experience in their lives? And that's my part. Um, and then what does that mean about what our ethical duties are to them? And that's his part. So um, it's been a lot of fun to collaborate with my dad. So I know from previous experience of like talking to people, it's like, I want to be a doctor because my parent was a doctor because I was in the hospital a lot. Do you think that having your father be someone who has a PhD kind of helped shape you to also get a PhD? Yeah, I think it very, very well might have. Um, we've, <laughs> my parents recently moved, um, they downsized to a condo. And um, so of course, that means that they gave me all of these things that were like, I don't know, my things when I was a kid. Um, and I had to write a book when I was in like the first grade about what my future life would be. Um, and uh, in that book, I uh, said I wanted to be a professor. Um, <laughs> I don't know that I know, I don't think I knew exactly what that meant at the time, <laughs> um, except that I knew that I got to go with my dad to work sometimes and um, got to run up and down the hallways and that all the other uh, you know, professors had interesting things in their offices. <laughs> um, so, um, but I, I did know for a really long time that I wanted to work with animals. And for uh, many years, I thought the only option that I had was to become a vet, um, that that was the only thing I could do if I wanted to work with animals. Um, and it wasn't until, until I was in college that I really started to think about, oh, like I could do research. Like this is a, another thing that I could do. And, I think um, having a dad who was a professor made it easier for me to approach other professors and say, hey, I'm interested in like doing something kind of out of the box. Like, I know this is different from what you do, but like, can you help me figure out how to do this? Um, um, I was a very shy kid. <laughs> I was very shy in, in college too. And it would have been harder for me to do that if I didn't already have um, you know, some experience, uh, good experience with professors, I think. I know you already kind of talked about it, but did you have like any other career paths that you kind of jumped around from when you were in college? Um, not really career paths, but I, I did have a kind of a weird path to get here, um, which is that 
um, you know, what do you major in when you want to study animal behavior or animal cognition, just animals in general, you're not exactly sure what it is about animals you want to study. Um, I went to a school that's about half the size of Wesleyan um, and they, we didn't really have anybody who did anything like this. I mean, there's the field is really small, so there just aren't that many people who do animal cognition or animal behavior in a, in a way that is sort of similar to where I en ended up going. Um, so my options were like psychology, which was really focused on, um, uh, had really had a clinical kind of bent to it. A lot of clinicians, um, really nobody doing anything animal related um, or, or not much animal related um, or um, biology and all of our biologists um, were doing not really animal beha <laughs> behavior things. Um, uh, anthropology, our anthropologists were doing uh, cultural anthropology. Um, and so I kind of ended up with a weird major. <laughs> I ended up majoring in math. Um, <laughs> and the reason I, I ended up majoring in math was um, a totally silly uh, one, uh, which is that I came in with AP credits and I was always going to minor in math. Um, and so I just was taking math classes all along. And then my first year advisor um, was like at the end of my second year, because I had never declared a major, I stayed with my first year advisor for my second year. <laughs> um, uh, she was like, Ellen, you have to declare a major. <laughs> you have to pick something. Um, and so I looked at my transcript and was like, I can get a math major in five classes. <laughs> um, so I did that. And that left me lots of room to take classes that were just kind of fun. And um, what I ended up doing. Um, so I have a minor in psychology. Um, I had a major in math um, and I was one class away from minors in biology, anthropology, and English. So um, it really let me dabble in ways that were really important. Um, and then, you know, on the other side, it turns out that my math major really has helped me in a lot of ways <laughs> moving forward. Um, you know, uh, thinking about logic and proofs and everything has helped me um, design my own research studies. It's helped me um, with my writing. Uh, so I often think about my writing as, um, as a mathematical proof. So I think about, you know, what is my thesis? This is the theorem that I am trying to prove. And then I um, sort of go through sort of step-by-step -step, um, logical, uh, you know, moves, trying to think about how I'm going to best support my, my case. Um, and of course, there's uh, math involved in, in research in all kinds of ways. So math was actually a good move for me. <laughs> um, even though, it, you know, people are often like, you know, shake their head at me <laughs> about my, my math degree, but it was fun. I enjoyed it. So then I must ask, since you have a math background, I know there's always that debate between the like significantly, statistically significant p-value being like the 0.05. Do you have an opinion on that debate, whether it should be like something else or whether you should do effect size or anything like that? Oh yeah. So now we're into the, the replication crisis and all the chaos that's happening in psychology and so many other fields. <laughs> um, I think I, I'm, I'm really interested in what will shake out and what will end up um, happening. I don't necessarily think that a P of 0.05 is um, a magic 
number, right? Um, it's, it is in many ways an arbitrary number that we've decided is a magic number. Um, I do think effect sizes and confidence intervals are more, um, you know, they're more, they reflect reality a little bit more, I think, than sometimes in a sort of being um, stuck with that 0.05 value. Um, and many of the best journals in psychology are moving that direction. So psychological science is one, <clears throat> for example, that's sort of moving away from traditional p-values. Um, but they're like, yeah, this is a huge fight <laughs> for sure in, um, in science and in psychology um, uh, in particular these days. Um, you know, moving towards going to Bayesian statistics and avoiding, you know, the parametric statistics that many of us use. Um, lots of lots of uh, conversations here, um, but uh, but I do prefer, and I'll, I do whatever the journal tells me is required of the journal. But what I think is most convincing is um, uh, confidence intervals and effect size. When you were in college, were you a part of like any clubs or any activities that you really enjoyed? Good question. Um, let's see. I was a I was a math tutor, um, and I also was a writing center tutor, and I really really liked that. Uh, that being a writing tutor really helped me improve my own writing, and um, helped prepare me uh, for. I teach a writing intensive class uh, here. Um, uh, as some of you know, <laughs> uh, I've taken it. Um, uh, so it really helped me prepare to give students feedback and coach students on, on writing. Um, I, um, I also did, I worked a lot in college. So I worked at, um, at the primate sanctuary that I mentioned. Um, I worked there, I don't know, like 20 hours a week or something. Um, and I also worked at, um, uh, at an ice cream shop, <laughs> which was uh, one of my favorite jobs of all time because they gave me a key and I could go get ice cream at three o'clock in the morning when I was studying late at night. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, so I, I, I worked a fair amount as well in college, um, but I think my uh, activities, my university activities were really tutoring kinds of things, yeah. Did you have preferred math subjects? Like, I know a lot of people are like algebra people, geometry people, stats people. Did you have a preference when it came to that? Um, good question. Yeah, I didn't, I never liked geometry. <laughs> um, a lot of the sort of, I'm not good at the, um, you know, holding in my head images of graphs and um, angles and things like that. So I was never, never particularly good at, at that. Um, but my favorite area in math, um, I took a, a May term um, a number theory class and that was really fun. So um, I, I still remember some of the proofs that we did in that class and um, uh, they were very elegant and lots of fun. So, um, and uh, it was a small class because it was, it was May term and um, uh, I think there were maybe six or seven of us. And so we would, you know, we'd go to class and then we would leave and go right to the library and we'd work really hard through our, you know, trying to figure out the proofs. Um, and then we'd run back to the professor's office and be like, we did it. And he'd be like, no, you didn't <laughs> and send us away. 
um, but it was really fun. It's like solving a mystery or putting a puzzle together. Um, so that was, uh, I think, my favorite area of math. What would be your favorite class? Because I know you said that you were in a lot of different subjects. Ooh, um, that's a good question. Um, I took so many, so many great classes in college. Um, would you have a professor that you want to kind of shout out for being an awesome professor? <laughs> oh, I had, I had great, awesome professors too. Um, uh, let me do the favorite class and then I'm going to come back to the professors. So um, I, um, I think my favorite class uh, so I, I guess I'd have three um, that were maybe four that were up there. Um, number theory was one. Um, I also did some travel courses. And so those were, um, you know, I have to include those. I went to Hawaii with on a tropical ecology course. Um, and I took a Jane Austen in film class. And we went to um, the Jane Austen conference. And that was, um, that was really fun. Um, but I also took a detective fiction class and I think that that probably is like, was my, one of my favorites. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was so fun. I loved mystery novels when I was a kid. Um, I still like mystery novels. Um, and it was just really fun to sort of think about, uh, something that had always been a hobby to me in this sort of, um, an intellectual kind of a way. So that was really fun. Um, but I had so many great professors when I was in college. Um, my sort of our version of Gateway when I was in college, my um, instructor there was wonderful. Her name is Martha Geringer. Um, so I still talk to Martha um, uh, periodically. She just got a new dog. <laughs> um, uh, she was a, a poet. So um, she was in the English department. Um, uh, James Wagner in biology um, was really important um, in my college career as well. And um, uh, Meg Upchurch, who was a psychologist, uh, was, was really um, uh, great to me too. So she supervised my um, high school research project. So then knowing that your journey has kind of pinballed a little bit all around. Do you have any like advice that you would give to people who like don't know what they want to do in the future? Maybe they're coming in undecided or yeah. maybe they're graduating from Wesley and are like, oh gosh, the real world. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I'd say, I think the best thing that I ever did for myself as a human um, was to take like random fun classes just because they looked fun. Um, <clears throat> most of the time, those were like, those were the classes that meant the most to me were like, you know, detective fiction and Jane Austen and film and like <laughs> all these like, you know, classes that were not, um, you know, that had nothing to do with uh, what I ended up doing as a career, but actually have a lot to do with me as a person. Um, and so I really enjoyed those. Um, so don't be afraid to pinball around and take some classes. Don't get hung up on making sure that every class you take um, is going to get something for you, um, you know, um, tangible for you because you never know um, how it might shape your life. Um, my other big piece of advice is um, something that I did that I'm going to tell you not to do. <laughs> Um, <laughs> which is that I, when I graduated, I went right into graduate school. So um, uh, 
it was, you know, here's the good part of that. The only good part of that was um, I had a PhD at 26 years old. Like that's kind of cool, but that's like it. <laughs> that's the only good part uh, for me that, that was, that worked out for me. Um, most of the, so here are the, here are the cons. Um, I had a pretty rough grad school experience. Um, uh, grad school can be great, but it can also be terrible. Um, and, you know, at 21, go, starting grad school, I really didn't have the confidence or the, um, you know, life experience behind me to be able to say, um, you know, to walk away from a bad situation. Um, I know this is very vague, <laughs> but I was, I had a, um, uh, a, a rough, um, experience with my advisor. Um, I'll, I won't go into lots of details and just say it was a, it was a rocky relationship. Um, and, um, it was really hard for me to say like, this is just bad for my mental health. And this is not something that I should that, that's working for me. So on the one end, some, a little bit of, uh, of further life experience would have been really helpful for me um, to be able to stand up for myself a little bit better um, in, in, in a tough experience of grad school. Um, for a second thing, um, just over the last few years, I've been noticing that so many um, graduate programs are not accepting students right out of undergrad. Um, they are expecting students to have a year or two or more um, of uh, some sort of lived experience before they come to grad school. Um, some of the best students that I have ever worked with were rejected from programs um, when uh, those same students five years ago would have been, you know, programs would have been bending over backwards and fighting over them. <laughs> so there certainly has been a shift in, in what PhD programs are looking for. Um, they're looking for, um, oh, people to have done lab manager positions or, um, you know, worked in the, in the field a little bit or been research assistants or something um, before um, coming into, the, into programs. That's not all, all PhD programs or not all graduate programs, but that's the kind of trend that I've been seeing. Um, and so I think, um, I don't think you should be in a rush um, to know exactly what you're going to do for the rest of your life when you are graduating. Um, we know um, that um, right now in particular, that jobs are in flux a great deal, that, that people don't tend to have the same career um, for their entire the rest of their lives, right? That people do have a lot of career changes. And so getting yourself a, a sort of a good um, breadth of experience can help you not only figure out what you want to do and what you don't want to do, <laughs> but can also set you up for a wide variety of career changes that might come um, uh, down the road. Because, you know, if you think about now, what might five years from now look like, it's kind of hard to imagine, right? Um, you know, the world is changing so quickly all the time. Um, so, um, so, and then the last thing I'll say is that a college degree is really great, um, but a lot, of, a lot of places, a lot of things that you're moving towards next aren't necessarily going to care what your degree is in. 
Um, so they care that you have a degree because it shows, you know, that you can accomplish a big task, <laughs> that you have some knowledge behind you that you've learned some things, um, but they don't necessarily care um, that it's in A, B, or C field, right? Um, so I would tell people to not get super hung up on, um, you know, having a, having a degree in the thing that you're going to go into next. I mean, I had a math degree and I went into psychology. The thing that was the hardest for me was when I started teaching um, uh, because I didn't know any psychology. <laughs> they threw me into a gen psych class and they were like, figure it out. Um, and so I'm like frantically reading the textbook, um, like trying to learn psychology, um, but I figured it out, right? And so what a liberal arts college can do for you um, is make it so that you can just figure stuff out, right? That it's easier, you're, you're more flexible as you're moving ahead into a sort of ever-changing kind of environment. As bio majors uh, like Sailor and I and Julia are, we've been having a lot of conversations with like our peers about like, okay, if you could redo your college experience, like would you still be a bio major? Mm -hmm. And it's so odd to hear the amount of people who would be like, I thought I needed to be a bio major to do what I wanted to do. But as they started, you know, taking the classes and doing like what you said, exploring other opportunities. And then they figured out that like the classes they were most interested in wasn't in their major. It was outside of their major and maybe what they were minoring in or just dabbled in, but they could still do something with that, that they enjoyed yeah. with still reaching their goal. And it was very interesting to see how many people would have liked took a step back and kind of like done, you know, a undeclared at the beginning and explored a little more or would have, you know, switched their major and their minor around, not to say anything bad about like biology, but yeah, it's yeah. really just, I think that one in particular, because biology is one of those fields where like, I'm going to be a doctor, I need to get a bio degree, or I'm going to do this, I need to get a bio degree, um, where we kind of forget that like, psychology I think like neuroscience has been a lot of what people have been like shifting to who are interested in that like intersection between psych and bio and so like that's a great field for them to still get what they want per se but be able to like really have more of a cohesive educational experience yeah definitely I think you know I'm I'm always telling my advisees like just look at the look at the classes what what jumps out at you is there something that looks fun and a lot of times it's it's it can be really hard to get students, especially in the first and second year students, to like let go of the you know, checklist, right? Of the, here's all the classes that I need. Um, like, I have to get these classes and ah, it's all a panic, right? Um, and like take a deep breath and enjoy your college experience because like when else, I, I think back to my college experience and I think when else in my life was I ever going to be able to spend an entire semester reading and talking intellectually about detective novels? Like never, that was never gonna happen. And that's like, that has been such a great, um, you know, that was such a great thing for me as a person. And so I think um, we get so hung up on, you know, the, ma the major and the minor or the whatever that we forget that really what college is about is about exploring and learning more about who you are and what you're interested in and where you what paths you might want to go down in the future so um yeah i think it's it's i'm glad you all are having those conversations and thinking about um 
about that. And I hope you have those conversations with first years and sophomores too, um, so that they can start um, uh, thinking about what fun classes they could, you know, take and not feel so stuck to the path. Yeah, it's interesting too, because I'm interested to see how that shift kind of occurs now that with the new course catalog, there's, you know, you can double dip, there's less 300 level courses that you have to take. And so that will either, I think, pinhole students into being like, I can graduate in three years if I buckle down, or the opposite where it goes, well, I have so much more now that I can explore. And it's going to be very interesting to see the direction in which people take. I'm assuming that using one is probably a better choice than the other, <laughs> but do you want to talk a little bit about like that dichotomy? Yeah, I mean, it's hard, right? There's certainly arguments for both. Um, you know, if, if there are uh, financial constraints, for example, and the only way that you can make it through um, is to graduate in three years and pack it all in, then by all means. <laughs> um, but if the, um, you know, finances are not constraining and you do have um, the flexibility to take the time and really explore and um, take those wacky classes, then um, that's exactly that's exactly the right use of a liberal arts college um, is to um, say, okay, I've got some flexibility in here, and now I'm going to take ceramics. Um, and then, wow, it turns out you really like ceramics, and you do that on the side for a while, and then you know your career in I don't know, banking uh, 20 years down the road explodes and there's no, there's a banking bubble. I don't know, I'm making all this stuff. Um, and now you, um, uh, but you've been, you know, you've been doing ceramics this whole time and now you can make a business out of your thing that was once a hobby. Um, you know, I think you can think about it in terms of, you know, um, you know, play directions you might go sort of career-wise in the future, or you can just think about it in terms of, um, hey, I still like uh, mystery novels and I still read mystery novels now. And it's just a thing that I do for me. It's not something that I talk about um, with other people. It's not something I talk about sort of intellectually in the same kind of way that I did when I took detective fiction, but um, I enjoy it. And I still think about some of the things that I learned and the, um, the themes that emerged from that class and how they um, fit into the books that I'm reading. So they can sort of just be things that can personally enrich your life or things that might be, um, you know, your side hustle in the future. Um, so lots of different ways to think about what you could do with those pieces of flexibility that are now in the curriculum. I'm a huge proponent of like the crossroads of like different disciplines, especially when I think about like the sciences and art. I think about, um, Lisa Blackman. So like she was always going at that like intersection of like science and art. And I think especially with like science illustration and just the ability to like teach science to others through art forms is insanely cool. Yeah. And it's just like having that. And I, I, again, a big proponent of the liberal arts degree too, for the same reason of like getting in all of that intersectionality in a sense so that when you go to you know even if it's just like you go to your next job it's like look at all of these skills that are like essential that I was able to do like I am so flexible I've done all of these things and I figured out so much about myself also because I think the liberal arts degree really helps with like self-discovery mm -hmm. as well as like intellectual discovery and education 
100%. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with all of that. Yeah. I, you know, I was the only one in my cohort um, in grad school um, uh, who had um, a liberal arts degree. Everybody else came from a big research un university. Um, and I was the one um, who would get the phone call at nine o'clock at night when the homework was due the next day, <laughs> you know, where people were like panicking. Um, and I didn't have a degree in psychology, right? Like the reason that they were calling is because of that flexibility, that, uh, that ability to sort of think about things in different ways and explain things in different ways and come from different perspectives. Um, I had all of the tools that I needed, even though the content was different than stuff that I had known before. It's easy to learn new content. Um, it's hard to learn new skills. Um, so, um, you know, coming into a, a, a program with the skills already there um, is tremendously um, helpful. I think it's really great that you brought up Nisa, Katie, because she was actually an art major. She has her degree in art and she taught the Gen Bio Lab and she was insanely smart, like just hearing her talk, like it was insane. Okay, so we do this fun little section with every person that we have called the rapid fire. So we have like a bunch of random questions that we're just gonna kind of go through with you and then you'll just give us our answer. Great. <laughs> um, so who is your favorite professor? Like that I had in college? Yes. Oh, um, okay, I, cards on the table. I did have a class with my dad. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna have to say my dad. <laughs> We've been talking a lot about novels. So what's your favorite novel? Ooh, uh, The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. It sounds like a mystery novel. Is it a mystery novel? It is. It's spooky. <laughs> <laughs> so this kind of question can go either way, depending if you're a cooker or an eater. Uh, what's your favorite thing to cook or eat? Um, I'm a dessert person and I love to bake dessert and I love to eat dessert. Um, but my kind of go-to um, is uh, blondies um, because I always have all the ingredients for blondies in my house. And so in an emergency, which happens, I don't know, like once a week, a dessert emergency <laughs> um, where I'm like frantic for some something sweet, um, I can always have blondies. <laughs> What's your favorite class to teach here at IWU? Oh, um, this is going to surprise a lot of people, uh, but I love teaching research methods. Um, it's really fun to see students go from sort of passive consumers of research to sort of more active consumers and, and students who are ready to go out and conduct their own research too. It's really fun. Uh, so if you could have any exotic pet, barring any ethical issues, barring any legal issues, which pet would you choose? Oh, no. <laughs> so I have to say that, that the ethical issues make this question impossible for me. <laughs> I've worked in an animal sanctuary and have done a fair share of um, uh, uh, getting animals out of bad places and into good places. Um, uh, but let me think of the most exotic dog breed that I can think of. Um, you know... Um, I have always loved Bernie's mountain dogs. I think they are beautiful and amazing and adorable. Um, but, uh, I've never had one before, so maybe one day. <laughs> what is something that's on your bucket list that you want to get done by the end of this year? Oh, uh, by the end of this year, 
Um, I'm actually working on another book. Um, so I have a book project um, that I want to get done. Um, and um, my second, I've got two things. Um, I'm also currently working towards um, becoming a, cer a certified applied animal behaviorist. So this is a um, uh, people who work with animals with pretty severe behavior problems. So I wanna get much of the way, I won't get finished with the certification because there's a two year, anyway, get through most of the stuff that I need to do to get to that certification. So you kind of answered this a little bit, but do you have a favorite dog breed? Um, so um, I have, so I've got an Australian Shepherd mix and she's insane and wonderful and hilarious. And so I love herding breeds. Um, I think they're um, ridiculous and wild and crazy. And I love that. So um, Australian Shepherds, I'll go with that. <laughs> uh, what is your coffee, tea, caffeinated drink of choice? I don't drink caffeine. <laughs> um, I know it's crazy. Um, uh, yeah, I'm a water drinker. I'm super boring. <laughs> uh, but th there is, we do have a, um, a tea that I really like, and I can't remember what it's called because my husband always buys it and then it's in a little tent. <laughs> so whatever that is, it's like a fruity something. <laughs> What's your biggest fear? Snakes. Do you have a favorite typing font? Um, I, I like Palatino, I think is what it's called. <laughs> I want to personally thank you for not saying Arial 11. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the last person who asked that question said Arial 11. And I think I had a heart attack. Oh, no. <laughs> no, it needs, uh, you need a good serif with your font. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. What is your favorite local small-owned restaurant in Bloomington? Uh, uh, Epiphany Farms. That's where we got married. <laughs> or we, we had our reception. Um, and the follow-up question has to be, what flavor was your wedding cake? We didn't have a cake <laughs> because... I'm a big dessert person. So we had like every other dessert in the world. Um, we had a wedding creme brulee. So. Um. <laughs> I was waiting for it. Just, it was like all the blondies in the world for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had like seven different kinds of dessert, but um, but our like, we, we didn't cut the cake. We cracked the creme brulee. <laughs> oh. That's clever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite high school job? or maybe like college job that you had? Yeah, uh, I worked in an ice cream store, um, <laughs> Grater's Ice Cream, and that was really great. Um, yeah, I loved it. I ate so much ice cream. <laughs> oh, um, have you watched the movie Up? Uh, I watched it on a plane a long time ago, yeah. <laughs> you have an opinion on the dog in that movie? Oh my God, see now this is, this is going back too far. <laughs> I haven't, I, I don't remember it well enough. It's just the one that constantly goes squirrel. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. Like <laughs> dogs are really, like when, I, when I'm training dogs, um, you kind of want a dog who's gonna um, be able to do a recall or a, a come to you um, in the face of a squirrel. That's always the goal. It's like, if there's a squirrel, you, you want your dog still to come to you. <laughs> so, 
girls very distracting. <laughs> so I know you said that you worked in um, an ice cream place. So do you have a favorite flavor of ice cream? Uh, I have lots of very strong opinions about ice cream. <laughs> um, I, um, I, yes. So I do like a um, double chocolate chip. So chocolate, chocolate chip, but then you need, you can't just have that because <laughs> it's too much chocolate. You need a little bit of cookie dough um, ice cream to balance it out. So I like a combo <laughs> of cookie dough and chocolate, chocolate chip. So in Saga, there are, there's an ice cream machine and there's a Froyo machine and they like to just like switch it up. So you never know if you're going to be eating Froyo that day or ice cream. Do you have a love or hatred of Froyo versus ice cream? Um, ice cream, 100% every day. <laughs> um, Froyo is inferior. Um, and um, I will just point to the good place as evidence of that. <laughs> Uh, where is the dog lab actually at? Um, it's in Shaw um, Hall. So it's uh, um, the, on the second floor. Um, and every now and then, if you go by Shaw, you'll, you'll hear people singing or you'll hear, sometimes you'll hear the dogs barking. <laughs> is there a kitchen appliance that you can't live without? Um, I love my KitchenAid standing mixer. <laughs> I use it every day, not every day. But... I'm depending on whether or not to get one just because, I don't know, I guess like, what is it called? I can't even remember. But my little spoon thing just does it for me. But I've just been debating whether or not to invest in a stand mixer. And you might be convincing yeah. me to sway that way. I love it so much. It was also like a very empowering purchase for me because it was my first like expensive per like adult purchase um, that I bought when I was in grad school. And like all my friends had gotten married and we all chipped in together and got them all a KitchenAid standing mixer for their wedding. And so in my head, like you get your KitchenAid when you get married. <laughs> so like I wasn't gonna have one for a while. Um, and then I realized like, I could just go to Target and <laughs> buy one for myself. And that was amazing. That was like the best day ever. I went, I just went, I like, I don't know why I never thought um, that that was something you could just do, but you can buy yourself the, the, <laughs> the standing mixer. That reminds me, there was a comedian that I watched and she was talking about like being an adult in your 20s. And she was like, yeah, that rug I bought from Ikea with a coupon. Yeah. Now I'm an adult. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Exactly how I felt. <laughs> so do you have a favorite condiment? Um, let's see. I, so I'm, I am all about those calories. <laughs> I like a hollandaise sauce. <laughs> um, yeah, I like a hollandaise sauce. Lots of cream, lots of butter. <laughs> Maybe the final question to wrap things up. What is your favorite place to travel to? London. I love London. Yeah, I would go back there any day, every day. I love it. <laughs> All right, I guess that marks the end of this podcast. I know you said that you may have cleaners coming over today, so I don't want to cut into that time at all. Yeah. I don't have like, vacuum cleaners in the back and we're like, Rrr. yeah. <laughs> yeah so we'll be here any minute, but uh, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking your time to talk with us today. This was lots of fun. Thank you for having me.
Of course, we are on Spotify, so check us out. And that's our episode. Thank you for listening to What's Up Doc. We want to specifically thank Dr. Furlong, um, as well as our hosts, Julia, Katie, and Sailor. And special thanks to Katie for editing this episode. And we are on Spotify, so listen in.